Orcas and salmon are friends that need help. Our ocean pals are facing some trouble. Less trouble, more bubbles. There's so much we can do. Do you know what I'm thinking? Let's start preaching extinction. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Breaching Extinction podcast. I hope you guys had a wonderful week. This week, I chatted with Lynn Berry. She is the Southern Resident Recovery Coordinator at NOAA, and we had a very interesting conversation, so I hope you guys learned a lot from it and enjoy it. But before we dive into this week's conversation, I wanted to go over the whale of the week. So that is K-14 Leah. She was born in 1977, and she has three offspring, which are K-26 Lobo, K-36 Yoda, and K-42 Kelp. Um, She spent a lot of time with Granny when Granny was alive, so with uh, J2's group. And her group has been seen traveling a lot with J-Pod, but more recently has been seen traveling with K-Pod. So those are our whales of the week. Also, we did wrap up our How I Kelp campaign, and we'll be posting a video on Monday with all the videos that were submitted, and we'll be announcing our winner then. So thanks, everybody, for submitting your videos, and keep kelping. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com slash breachingextinction and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs. Download a title for free and start listening. It's easy. Go to audible.com slash breachingextinction. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? Good. Thanks for being here. Um, So tell us a little bit about who you are, what your current role is, and how you got here. Sure. Uh, My name is Lynn Berry, and I'm a branch chief in the Protected Resources Division for NOAA Fisheries. And so my branch uh, works on Endangered Species Act and Marine Mammal Protection Act projects, things like overseeing the Marine Mammal Stranding Network and We work on recovery of Endangered Species Act listed species, including Southern Resident Killer Whales, and also we have a couple species of rockfish in Puget Sound that are listed as endangered and threatened. So, yeah, that's one hat as a branch chief, and I also wear the hat as the recovery coordinator for Southern Resident Killer Whales. Okay, so how did you get into this line of work? Yeah, so I studied biology and animal behavior uh, as a student and um, did some research in Western Australia on dolphins. I've worked with National Geographic on our Critter Cam project to learn about marine species and uh, ended up at NOAA Fisheries. And I actually worked for our headquarters office for a couple of years in Silver Spring, Maryland, and then came out to the West Coast region really to work on our Southern Resident Killer Whale program. That was about the time when we were petitioned to list them under the Endangered Species Act. Okay, and so what year was that that they were listed? They were listed in 2005. Okay. And that's a long process and had some court challenges along the way, but that was our final listing as endangered. And so uh, from there, um, I, you know, I became the recovery coordinator and I really have helped coordinate all of NOAA's actions. Um, From the Endangered Species Act listing, we've designated critical habitat 
And we had a very open public process to develop a comprehensive recovery plan, and that was completed in 2008. Excellent. So what does that mean, recovery coordinator? Like, what does your job entail day-to-day and long-term? Yeah, so so now we have a recovery plan in place, Mm -hmm. so we're working on implementation. Uh, So our recovery plan is comprehensive. It addresses the main threats to the Southern residents. Uh, Do they have enough of the prey they need to eat? Uh, There are high levels of contaminants that can cause health issues for them. And, um, you know, sound and vessels that can interrupt their foraging and communication. So we've um, actions to address those. We've also identified some other risks, things like disease that we want to keep an eye on. We want to be prepared. If there's an oil spill, uh, they're at risk because they all can be in the same place at the same time Mm -hmm. since they're so social. Um, So yeah, just our recovery plan covers all those things and also includes elements of um, coordination. Mm -hmm. It's a transboundary species. So we work with our partners in Canada we also work with state and county and you know all kinds of dist- uh, different jurisdictions. So kind of day to day, I'm working on a lot of partnerships. Mm-hmm. And in addition to this, you know, big scale recovery plan, we also have what's called a, a species in the spotlight action plan. Mm-hmm. So uh, identified some species that were endangered, mm-hmm. declining. And where we had some identification of, you know, what need, what threats need to be addressed. So we've identified kind of five years of the most high priority actions to help reverse the the decline for southern resident killer whales. And a big part of that and the recovery plan implementation is really the partnerships. Mm-hmm. Um, that includes a lot of coordination internally. Mm-hmm. So I work with a lot of NOAA colleagues who are working on salmon management and recovery. And I also work uh, with our science center, people like Brad Hansen, who I understand you you uh, talk to as well. And then, um, you know, all the partners that are engaged in, in salmon issues, in recovering uh, the whales, addressing those other threats of contaminants and vessels and sound. And then really lots of partners just focused on improving our ecosystem. So the, I'd say those partnerships are a lot of what I do mm-hmm. and they're really key to success. Uh, for the for addressing the threats for southern residents, because they're really you know so far-reaching and connected or affected by you know so many human activities. So you know another coordination point and something I've worked on is the Washington State Orca Task Force mm-hmm. that was put in by Governor Inslee. So we're now working to implement the recommendations from the task force as well. And there's a lot of complementary actions between that plan and our our action plan, as well as our our recovery plan. So that's what I spend a lot of my time doing. That sounds like you're a very busy person, Um, but that also sounds like a lot of fun and like a very interesting position to be in. Um, Can you tell our listeners a little bit about the Orca Task Force? Because that's a very, I think, unique conservation um, idea or, you know, implementation that happened. Sure. Uh, So uh, Governor Inslee in Washington signed an executive order, and he really was directing the state agencies that are very connected to the threats around salmon and contaminants and vessels. Uh, He directed them to to take actions to help support recovery of southern resident killer whales. Mm -hmm. And then he brought to task force, uh, which was almost 50 people from a lot of different walks of life, 
government, tribal representatives, uh, industry, you know, fishing, whale watching, mm-hmm. elected officials. Um, it was really a, a broad and diverse group of people on the task force. And then it was a public process, so we got a lot of public input along the way. Mm-hmm. So I really found able to sit at that table. I was a member of the task force and be able to listen to a lot of the discussions and really help share the experience NOAA has had in developing a recovery plan, what's most important to the whales, um, and what are who are the people that need to be brought to the table to make steps to address those threats and make improvements for the whales. So I think uh, it's it's a re- it was a really good process. It raised a lot of awareness, mm-hmm. so people learned about what the southern residents are facing Mm -hmm. and and ways to engage so i thought that was really positive as well yeah that's awesome and you know i think that that's amazing that you guys were able to bring in so many sides because all those sides are relevant um and obviously there's a lot of work to be done and um you know everyone can do their part so that's excellent um so i know that you recently published on that same paper that brad was on with the endangered predators endangered prey so what role does science play in conservation and in your job? Oh, it's it's so critical to my job. Mm-hmm. NOAA is a space-based agency, mm-hmm. and we are science centers built into our structure. So that's where uh, Brad Hansen and his team work mm-hmm. and help us fill data gaps and really are helping us uh, use the best available science and data to help us make informed management decisions. And so, you know, I know you, you spoke with Brad, he's mm-hmm. with our Northwest Fisheries Science Center, and he and I work really closely together to think about, you know, what are the data gaps? What are the priority research projects that their team can execute to, to help us um, with the actions that we need to take to address the threats? Mm-hmm. So for example, the recent paper on mm-hmm. endangered predators and endangered prey, um, that really was essential for us to move forward with some actions that we were looking at along the West Coast. Mm-hmm. So one example was um, how do salmon fisheries along the West Coast uh, potentially affect the prey available to the whales? Mm-hmm. And having that from Brad's work to better understand, you know, which prey the whales are eating, what are they finding in their habitat and their environment really helps us understand actions that can affect those different runs of salmon. Mm-hmm. Um, We also looked at uh, the coastal diet as well as the really helpful information Brad's team collected on the whale distribution along the West Coast. Mm -hmm. Sort of how do the align? Where are the salmon? When are the salmon passing through the habitat? How Mm -hmm. are the whales using that coastal habitat? And that was all really important for us to um, develop a proposal to protect West Coast habitat uh, Mm -hmm. as critical habitat. That's one of the protections of the Endangered Species Act. So we put out a proposal for protecting some of the waters of Washington, Oregon, and California, mm-hmm. um, and really fight on uh, some of that that key salmon data. That's um, awesome. and another example, yeah, would be um, the work that the Science Center has done using uh, digital acoustic tags. Mm-hmm. These are tags uh, put on the whales, the D tag with mm-hmm. a suction cup, and um, we can learn about how the whales are foraging, mm-hmm. what's their dive pattern. How are they echolocating to find and catch their salmon prey? Mm-hmm. And also, how is that impacted by things like vessels in the vicinity or sound? Mm-hmm. So that's that data, as well as data from uh, groups like the Soundwatch Boater Education Program. Mm-hmm. 
collecting data on, you know, what the boats are doing around the whales. That's all really informative as we look forward to updating or developing federal vessel regulations to protect the whales. Yeah. So there's just a couple of, there are many more, but yeah, the science is really the foundation for a lot of our actions. Yeah. And that's excellent. I think, you know, we definitely need to rely more on science because when we look back at history, you know, some of our decisions not made in science were detrimental for a lot of, you know, our species. So that's really important. Um, A question that I do get from a lot of people, because people just ask me questions about the Southern residents all the time, and I don't have all the answers, but about DTAGs specifically, um, some people have pushed back and said that the DTAGs um, can be harmful to the whales. But based on my information, to me, it seems as though it's like it briefly interrupts their behavior, but then they go back to acting normal and you can just study them. Is that pretty much what's going on? Or how would you respond to someone asking if the DTAGs impact their behavior or if they're, you know, accurate in assessing what's going on? Yeah, I think uh, the suction cup attachment, it is short term, Mm -hmm. Um, all the long enough term, I think, for the whales to uh, acclimate to having it on and Mm -hmm. to go back to their normal behavior so we can get data on their normal Mm -hmm. foraging behavior. Uh, But in general, I'd say, you know, not just our own researchers, but, you know, we work closely with a lot of collaborators Mm -hmm. studying the whales. And they all go through, um, you know, a a rigorous um, research permit process Mm -hmm. where we're looking at potential impacts. We're looking at things like the expertise of the researchers. Um, We're looking at ways to minimize the impacts on the animals and also looking to coordinate that research so that uh, we know, you know how many research vessels are around the whales and really try to minimize that that footprint um, so we can learn as much as possible but still uh, protect the whales as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, all of that totally makes sense. Um, interesting. Um, so obviously science plays a huge role in conservation and we need to listen to that. So based on the science that we have right now, what efforts are currently in place to help the Southern residents? Oh, so many, uh, it's such a broad issue that, uh, is so far reaching that I feel like, yeah, everyone can really find a way to connect to it and engage in recovery. Mm -hmm. So, you know, public citizens in the way they, manage their uh, household, how they commute, mm-hmm. how they interact with elected officials. These are all things at the, you know, individual public level. Uh, and then, you know, sort of moving up to uh, what I focus on at the federal level, you know, as, as I mentioned, we're really looking to address the threats. So thinking about um, uh, how Chinook salmon is affected by a mm-hmm. whole host of different activities throughout their life cycle. Mm-hmm. And looking at uh, the information we have from the diet studies, mm-hmm. from just learning about the overlap of the whales and different runs of salmon, we can help uh, inform our colleagues and our broader community that's working on salmon conservation mm-hmm. and really think about how um, habitat restoration projects can be prioritized in a way that has benefits to the whales that might fill in some gaps throughout the year mm-hmm. where the whales might not have to eat. Uh, we're looking at hatchery production and is there a way to increase some hatchery production that benefits the southern resident killer whales and adds to their prey, mm-hmm. but also sure it's done in a way that doesn't affect the natural salmon populations. And Mm -hmm. also some of those populations are threatened and endangered as well. Mm -hmm. So kind of keep 
on, on both those things. And then also looking at, you know, all the H's for salmon, hydropower, um, and also thinking ahead to, to climate, to other predators that are out there. So there's a really a lot going on, uh, on the prey side. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, mentioned vessels a little bit. Um, we're currently reviewing our U.S. federal vessel regulations. Mm -hmm. We put regulations into place mm -hmm. in 2011. And since then, um, Washington State has updated their vessel regulations. Canada has come out with some new um, regulations. And so we've started a scoping process to get public input on mm -hmm. what NOAA consider uh, for updating the federal rules on the U.S. side. And we also work a lot on our Be Whale Wise campaign mm -hmm. uh, with our partners, Soundwatch, doing boater education. But really, it's it's a whole host of partners that are engaged in helping people understand how to operate their vessel responsibly around the whales, so as not to you know impact their foraging. Absolutely. And uh, you know we're implementing other actions from the governor's task force. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's nation number twenty-two, mm -hmm. which is think about not just small vessels that are following the whales or wanting to watch the whales, but also large vessels that are passing through the area generating sound. Mm -hmm. So, you know, on a work group, uh, we're developing a project called Quiet Sound, mm -hmm. and it's modeled on Canadian program that the Port of Vancouver has in place to implement some uh, voluntary actions that ships in the shipping lane can take to slow down or adjust their path to minimize impacts to the Southern residents and other marine mammals as well. Um, let's see. So uh, let's see. On the contaminants and health side, <laughs> some of the things we're working on are really um, to learn more, to mm -hmm. guide our recovery actions. Mm -hmm. We need to better understand the individual health of the whales. Mm -hmm. So we work with partners like um, SR3, who's doing mm -hmm. the aerial photographs with the drone. Mm -hmm. So really fascinating way to measure their body condition and see how healthy they might be, um, collecting samples from breath, also feces. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of information in there about the health of the whales, about, you know, hormone levels, uh, pathogens, disease, um, and through our stranding network, learning about uh, causes of death for animals that we are able to recover and examine. So um, let's see, what else? Uh, looking yeah. at genetic inbreeding is yeah. another effort. So it's really a comprehensive recovery program and a, a lot of things in place, um, including <clears throat> education and outreach. That's a big part of our program and some of our key partners. Um, and that ranges everything from our Be Whale Wise voter education mm -hmm. uh, campaign to classroom programs. Mm -hmm. We work with a group called Killer Whale Tales. We work with uh, the Whale Trail that promotes you know, land-based viewing. Um, the Seattle Aquarium and the Whale Museum have exhibits about killer whales, so people can really learn about these mm -hmm. animals in our backyards, and we can let them know about stewardship's actions they can take to help contribute to recovery. So it's a really broad program. That's <laughs> Lots going on. Amazing. And that sounds incredibly comprehensive, and like we should have a lot of hope for the Southern residents going forward. Um, that's awesome that you guys are looking into new regulations as far as like, you know, vessel noise. Cause I know that that's a big one. I mean, they're all, they're all important, of course. Um, did, I'm curious, did you have anything to do with the regulations in Washington? Did you guys help with that? Or was that like Inslee or someone else? How does that work? 
Yeah, so uh, I was a part of that as far as the recommendations that came out of the ORCA task force. Mm -hmm. uh, but go through a legislative process and um, yeah, the, the state updated their distance regulations and mm -hmm. speed, uh, speed rules. And then they also uh, moved forward with a commercial whale watch licensing system. Mm -hmm. And all we played is a couple of our scientists, like Marla Holt, who does mm -hmm. the DTAG project. Uh, she and one of my other colleagues, Don Norin, sat on a science panel through the Washington Academy of Sciences mm -hmm. to review the information about how vessels can impact the whales. Mm -hmm. So that was a key And then uh, also we participated in a governmental group that helped discuss with WDFW some of the kind of implications, mm -hmm. uh, connections to other rules that were in place as they were moving forward, developing that licensing system. So yeah, a lot of close coordination uh, with our partners at Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife. Yeah, that's, wow, that sounds very comprehensive. And uh, like, I remember when it came out, there was a lot of backlash, but I, when I looked at it overall, it looks very positive. And I think that that was great that you guys kind of incentivized them like whale watching boats, not being around the Southern residents by, you know, having some sort of monetary relief. I think that's excellent. A lot of people asked, um, like a lot of people were curious as to why wreck boats were not included in that regulation. Is that something that you guys considered or maybe it's not as much of an issue? Is like the data just not supporting that wreck boaters are um, as much of a problem as whale watching boats? Well, we already have regulations that apply to all vessels okay. uh, at the federal and the state level. So okay. that includes the recreational boaters. And so this whale watch licensing system just puts an, an extra layer of mm -hmm. kind of accountability and uh, control over the commercial industry. Mm -hmm. They're certainly out on the water spending um, time with the Southern residents mm -hmm. as part of their industry. So mm -hmm. um, it came out of the recommendations of the task force and also through the legislation that went through at the state level. So that was one of the, the areas to focus on. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Definitely. So obviously there's a lot of things in place and you work with a lot of people. It sounds like you have a very challenging job. Um, what challenges do you face in the position that you're in? Because I'm sure doing all the things that you do, um, it's not easy to get approval of like all these different groups or get everybody to work together or even collect all the data to get all this information. Oh, so many challenges. <laughs> yes. Uh, there's so many groups involved and, different researchers or different uh, nonprofit groups that are focused on recovery of whales or salmon or both, um, you know, all have different ideas about what the priorities are and what the most important thing to do is. So I really try to work with everyone out there mm -hmm. uh, that's got that goal in mind. And where we can, we work together. We try to push forward consistent messages that can resonate with people and really inspire stewardship at the public level. Um, but it's it's just really challenging and daunting because the threats uh, are so far reaching and so broad and cover so many human activities. You know, I, I think I mentioned you know, all the things related to salmon in the freshwater as well as the saltwater mm -hmm. um, have at hydropower, hatcheries, harvest. Those are our four H's for salmon. Uh, but then also thinking about what other predators are out there uh, com competing with mm -hmm. the southern residents for those those critical prey. And also uh, challenges for the future related to climate and climate change. 
I think that's something that's really uh, going to be a big challenge moving into the future. Um, but there's, you know, challenges working with industry uh, related to uh, salmon as well as vessel traffic and also, you know, harmful contaminants. These are pretty big, broad issues. But uh, as I said, you know, that, that's a way for everyone to find a connection or every state agency or every uh, organization that wants to be a part of killer whale recovery. They can, they can really find a way. Um, another challenge is just the, the aligning across these different jurisdictions, mm-hmm. uh, trying to align between a state and a federal vessel regulation, and then also thinking across the border to coordinate with our Canadian colleagues. Um, we're really working on that. So that's a, a big effort, but I think it's really worth it for us to align where we can so mm-hmm. that we can have the consistent and complementary messages uh, that are easy for people to understand and to to follow and and to contribute. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's definitely one of the first things I noticed when I got into all this because I came from Florida and then moved to Washington to work on whale watch boats and quickly learned about the Southern residents and learned that there's a lot of different messages and a lot of different ideas out there that can be very confusing. And that's kind of what inspired me to start the podcast was out of curiosity. So I do see the value of getting everyone on the same page. Um, I mean, do you think it's possible to get everybody on the same page or is that just like completely unrealistic in your opinion? (laughs) Well, I I think people are on the same page with the goal and that's really important and key. So, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what actions people think are the right ones to put up front Mm -hmm. or the most important tackle or that they have the most expertise Mm -hmm. in understanding or suggesting a change that will Mm -hmm. help the whales. So I think it really can come in a lot of shapes and sizes from different types of organizations and people. And as long as we're all sort of pulling in the same direction to address the threats and support recovery of the Southern residents, Mm -hmm. of the the habitat that we're all a part of too, um, uh, that gives me hope for success. Yeah, I think so, too. I think that there definitely is a lot of hope. Um, I know a lot of people push, like, the biggest thing that I see, like, across the board is the removal of the Lower Snake River dams. Um, Do you think that that would be an effective thing to help with salmon recovery? Because a lot of people seem to have the idea that that's, like, going to be the biggest thing that we can do to have the most amount of impact in the shortest amount of time. Obviously, we need to do a lot more. Um, than just that. But what do you think about that potential um, option? Well, I think what we've learned from like the new diet study about endangered predators and ende- endangered prey is that, uh, you know, the whales need to eat all year long mm-hmm. and throughout the range, you know, mm-hmm. all the way from Monterey, California, up to Southeast Alaska, mm-hmm. all the inland water around the San Juan Islands and into Puget Sound they have such a, a big range. They're they're mobile predators. Mm-hmm. They're eating mobile prey. Mm-hmm. So I, I think there's one answer. I think it really is going to take efforts to conserve and recover a number of different critical prey for the whales mm-hmm. from different systems. Uh, and that variety also gives us some hope for uh, resilience during potential oceanographic or climate changes in the future. So, uh, yeah, unfortunately, there's no one easy answer yeah, of course for not. any yes. of this. <laughs> and especially since the threats are connected to each other. So, you know, making sure there's enough prey out there 
then we also need to make sure that the whales can access that prey and they're not, you know, there's not too much interference with vessels or sound. Um, and so if we can keep enough prey in the water and the whales can get to that prey, then they're less likely to have the impacts from the contaminants that are often, you know, in higher levels in their blubber um, that circulate more and could cause immune function or reproduction issues uh, if the whales are really food limited. So, so yeah, everything's connected. I wish there was one action that we could all rally around as the one thing to do, but mm-hmm. uh, there's room for a lot of actions and a lot of things to do to yes. support recovery residents. So I guess just pick your favorite or the one you're most interested in and dedicate yourself to that. That makes sense. Yeah, no, it's very, very complex. Um, so I, you know, I hear that you work with a lot of different organizations and the public. What can we do as the public or different organizations to support NOAA and support like what you guys are doing? Yeah, so uh, I think working with our partners and mm-hmm. raising awareness is one of the first steps. So anything from, you know, thanks for doing this podcast. Of course. And, uh, letting people about the issues and what we're trying to accomplish at the for the federal recovery program, mm-hmm. um, and no, there are a lot of ways to engage. I mean, we, people can um, make choices in their homes and how they commute. They can make choices around um, getting their hands dirty. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, we've got it's like a whale scout out there who are helping people find hands-on habitat stream restoration projects where they can you know get their hands dirty and really work in their own watersheds Mm -hmm. and contribute to uh, survival and recovery of the Southern residents Mm -hmm. uh, through habitat. So there's, you know, so many things people can do, uh, but learning about the whales and sharing that information with your friends is, is a good start. Awesome. Um, Let's see. Um, So obviously you have contributed to Southern resident killer whale research. Have you been out in the field with them or were you more doing like data processing? I, I'm mostly on the management and policy side, okay. but I have had the opportunity working closely with our colleagues at the Northwest Fishery Science Center, and I have gotten on the water, and so I've tried my hand at collecting scale and tissue and uh, feces, Amazing. sniffing it out, scooping it up in the in the net. Um, you just had some amazing times out there seeing our research team at work and getting that understanding of, of the data they're collecting um, the whales we're trying to save yes, and uh, fits into, you know, the work I do on the regulatory side or with partners. Uh, it's really amazing. That's incredible. I'm curious, are you ever like scared when you get that close? Because I remember talking to Taylor Shedd from Soundwatch and he had mentioned that like, he's a kind of small guy and whales have a six foot dorsal fin and it, you know, it kind of freaked him out. Does it ever freak you out too? <laughs> Uh, I, I wouldn't say I was scared, uh-huh. but definitely uh, if you hear a blow nearby that yes. you weren't expecting, that yes. can be uh, surprising, but yes. also kind of awe-inspiring. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are large animals. So I, I really enjoyed getting out with the, the drone team mm-hmm. and able to see some of that, that footage from overhead. And it really is just such a, a different view than I was used to seeing, you know, on the boat as they're surfacing. Mm-hmm. There's There was just amazing shots of how they interact with each other and how they're staying close together when they do dive or a mom and a calf mm-hmm. nursing 
uh, just some amazing insights. And uh, I really enjoyed that aerial view as, as, as a change from what I'd seen from the boat. Yeah, I think that's incredible. Like, I, we're going to learn so much more from the, like that new research technique. Like, I've done um, bottlenose dolphin research in Sarasota and St. Petersburg, Florida. And I think we're just going to benefit so much from having that. Um, that's amazing. So how did you guys collect like the tissue samples? And like, I'm sure the scat you just like scooped up, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, following behind the whales, mm-hmm. they are messengers. They also <laughs> share their prey at times. Mm-hmm. So they will leave behind bits of tissue from the salmon prey okay. or a scale. Um, I've also been out on the water when we've encountered transient killer whales. These are the marine mammal eaters. Mm-hmm. And in that we could see a slick on the water mm-hmm. after a harbor seal was, was captured and they were messy as well and left bits and pieces behind. So uh, really just so amazing to see the different types of killer whales uh, interacting differently socially, going after different prey, different behaviors. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've really seen that out on the water as well. That's awesome. Um, so I'm curious, what can we learn from like the salmon scales and the bits of salmon that they leave behind? Oh, yeah. So not only can we tell what species of salmon and you know, most of this uh, sampling I've done has been in inland waters, some in winter months, but mostly in the summer. Mm-hmm. Um, and tells us, you know, Chinook is the predominant species in their diet. Mm-hmm. And from that tissue and scale, we can also look at the genetics of mm-hmm. the salmon to tell which run it came from. Mm-hmm. So we can tell whether this, you know, leftover bit of tissue is from a Puget Sound Chinook mm-hmm. or Columbia River Chinook. Mm-hmm. Um, this we can also tell the age of the fish. Mm-hmm. Is it a three or four year old or younger mm-hmm. uh, salmon? So there's a wealth of information in those little bits left behind, and in the feces. Oh my gosh, not just information about what they're eating, mm-hmm. but also about their health, about their hormone levels, contaminant levels, uh, just uh, incredible wealth of information about their um, microbiomes and their respiratory and uh, tract from the breast samples mm-hmm. or from their reproductive or their um, digestive tract from the feces. Mm-hmm. So just every little bit of information, we, we are building our foundation of knowledge about how the whales are doing, what their status is, what's affecting their health and and how to address it. That's incredible. That's awesome. I feel like there's so much we can learn. Um, are there any new like research techniques or new technologies that you guys are using or developing right now? Oh, there's always uh, things happening with, uh, I think particularly with the the breath samples, learning more about what pathogens we can pick up on. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the suction cup tags, the D tags, mm-hmm. they're getting skin samples from the, uh, you know, a leftover little bits of tissue in the suction cup, and we can learn about the skin microbiome of the of the whales as well. So really, you know, focus down on those microscopic and yes. really detailed bits of information. Um, and yeah, some of the new genetic information is really fascinating as well, looking mm-hmm. at the whole genome of the whales to see if we can tease out uh, some of the potential impacts if they are inbreeding uh, and how that could affect different uh, genetic markers that are related to immune function, uh, things like that. So mm-hmm. 
yeah, I think we're, we look smaller and smaller and smaller <laughs> to so the cool. level of detail we can learn about. But also that wider view, say from above, from a drone, also gives us that that more social aspect and some of the interactions between the whales or how they're interacting uh, with with vessels and sound and how they're responding. Wow. So yeah, so much to learn still, even though we've been studying these whales for, for many years. And I'll say really the foundation of a lot of this goes back to the Center for Whale Research and Ken Balcom mm-hmm. and really the census, the fact that we can tell each individual apart and track their lives and understand when a mom has a calf and then through the genetics, we can maybe learn who the father is. Uh, just really amazing history on the families in the Southern Resident Pods. Yeah, it's truly incredible. And, you know, I think that this particular group of animals is kind of just going to be the forefront of what we can learn about so many other species, because I bet there's other animals that have complex family groups like this as well that we just don't know because we haven't studied it yet. Um, But yeah, that's so interesting. The one question, um, or actually, I want to ask, why is it so important that we conserve these animals? Oh, they're so important to us mm-hmm. in the Pacific Northwest as icons mm-hmm. of our region. Yes. They have cultural significance to our uh, tribes in the Northwest. Mm-hmm. Um, they're really part of the culture. Uh, and they also are important indicators of the health of our ecosystem. Mm-hmm. I think understanding predator helps us understand all the building blocks and the whole food web mm-hmm. um, of the system that we're a part of and that we depend on and care about and enjoy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, they also have an economic value through ecotourism in the region. Yeah. So, I, you know, and I, I'm a public servant. I work for the federal government mm-hmm. and I'm committed to implementing the, the laws we have in place to protect these marine resources the Endangered Species Act, the Marine Mammal Protection Act. So, uh, yeah, I think there's lots of reasons to care about and want to recover Southern residents. Yeah, I think so, too. Um, The question that I always ask people is, what can we learn from the whales? Hmm. Well, uh, they they seem to live well in their family groups Mm -hmm. and have uh, successful interactions um, with moms and babies living together their whole lives. So yes. I think it's really fascinating the the social structure and that, that tight knit family group and the matrilineal society. And uh, so I, I think there's a lot of interesting animal behavior notes to learn about that, mm-hmm. you know, some of it to ourselves as well and, mm-hmm. and people, uh, but really, uh, you know, as indicators of the health of the ecosystem, I think that's a really important role uh, and what we can learn about the whales and better understand mm-hmm. the world we live. Absolutely. Do you have any final thoughts for everyone? Just to say, I'm very uh, glad that we have three new calves in the population right now. Yes. One J pod and one L pod, you know, that have been born since September. So that's always encouraging. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think when there's a baby on board, it gives us some hope, but also some caution about, you know, following the rules and keeping our distance and giving them some space. And so I'm hopeful that those calves will be successful and uh, help grow the population into the future. Yeah, I am also very hopeful for that. Yeah. And it's very motivating too. When we see that, it's like, okay, now it's we have to hustle and get everything done that we can get done for these animals. 
Well, thank you so much for being on here. This was awesome. Great. Thanks for the invitation. Of course. Always happy to talk about other residents. Thanks so much for joining us, everybody, and tune in next week um, for another fun discussion. As always, check out our social media pages, Patreon. Give us a review on here if you would like. Hope you guys have a lovely week. Bye-bye.